And now we're going to jump back into our series on Acts. Um, Last week, we learned a lot about the culture in Ephesus. We learned about how significant Artemis worship was and what a powerful and uh, influential thing Artemis worship was in Ephesus. If you missed last week, I would encourage you to jump online and watch it, maybe more than listen to it. There is a lot of uh, cool pictures and different uh, graphics and maps and different things that help kind of get you uh, immersed in the culture there and be able to visualize what it might have been like uh, to kind of understand the scale and scope of what was going on in Ephesus when it came to worshiping Artemis. So everything to find uh, that sermon is online at rlcpullman.com sermons. And then you can always find it on our YouTube channel or Facebook as well. So make sure you catch that one if you missed it. This morning, we're going to be digging into um, what I think is probably one of Paul's most difficult goodbyes. And it is the goodbye that that revolved around his last time in Ephesus. And uh, it was a pretty big deal. Now, the... The, the truth is, a lot of us are familiar with the fact that goodbyes are hard, right? Especially when it comes to people that you really love and care about. Living in Pullman, uh, we're sort of accustomed to uh, saying goodbyes for a lot of reasons. Um, first of all, every August, we get thousands of new WSU freshmen that come to school, oftentimes brought by their parents, and then we get to watch as their parents scurry around town and make last-minute trips to the stores and help get them settled in, and, and then there is this um, uncomfortable, uh, you know, parting where the parents are wanting to hang on as long as possible. The kids are sort of excited. There's all this new going on. There's new friends, a new place, uh, new adventure awaits, new freedom are just around the corner, right? Like new activities and things to get involved in, and there's this moment of excitement for a lot of kids, and it's met with this kind of fear and trepidation of a lot of parents that are saying goodbye, right? The the parents are oftentimes worried about the very things the kids are excited about. The parents are wrestling with being worried about the new friends, the freedom, the, the amount of things and activities that their kids can get involved in, like all these things, right? And then sometimes we see where there's uh, kind of this mutual uh, sadness at the departure where the parent and the kid both are just sort of recognize the significance of what it means to to at this time in life right where the parents are launching the kids out of the nest off to college and and there's sort of this um, bittersweet moment for both the kid and the parent and and I think Paul is a guy who was really used to and accustomed to bittersweet goodbyes um, Paul a lot of times would go and travel uh, and do missionary work. And as he traveled, there were times where he would spend a a very small amount of time in a certain place. There was times when he would spend a a greater deal of time there. And he was accustomed to um, making friends quickly, um, being a person of interest, uh, being a guy with influence and people that uh, a guy that people wanted to meet and then having to say goodbye. He was also really accustomed to building close relationships with his disciples and his follow, uh, the guys that would follow with him and that he would teach and, and coach and train up to do ministry. And he would invest in these guys and then send them off ahead of him or send them off into new places to go and share the gospel in new places. Other times he would uh, send them back to churches that they'd already been to to go back and check on them. And so Paul was a guy that was really accustomed to saying goodbye. Right, 
Um, this goodbye that we're going to look at today, I think, was unique in, in all of Paul's life up to this point. I think this was really uh, probably one of his most difficult goodbyes. Um, and in order to kind of understand why, like what's the significance of this goodbye? Why was it so uh, sad? Why was it such a hard goodbye for him? We've got to understand a little bit about what was going on up to this point with Paul um, leading up to this day where he finally was going to leave Ephesus. So Paul's been out traveling the world, doing missionary work. He's been all throughout Asia Minor, uh, Galatia, Macedonia. He's, he's going to all these different places, and he sort of cuts his teeth in these small rural towns and villages where he meets people and shares the gospel and teaches uh, in the synagogue about Jesus and how the scriptures say uh, who he was and that he fulfilled what the scriptures said about him. And he goes from place to place and he's learning as he goes. And then he eventually travels over into Macedonia and the towns begin to get bigger. And he's in uh, his first taste of kind of Greco-Roman cities. And he's in places like Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth. And, and he uh, faces all kinds of new challenges along this trip. He um, he's jailed at times, he's persecuted at times, he's beaten at times. He argues with philosophers and holds his own with some of the most uh, wise and influential teachers of their day. And all of this travel and, and speaking and teaching and leading, and it leads up to the time where he finally makes his way to this place, Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was unlike any place he had ever been up to this point. Ephesus was far and above the largest city that Paul had ever been to at this point. And, and Ephesus was like a, a mega city. It was a, a melting pot of cultures and religions and a variety of different gods that were worshipped and, um, and numbers of people that were unlike anything he'd ever seen and uh, a diversity of people both in economics and wealth and status but also in the places that they were from and the languages that were spoken and the foods and it was just a a really unique place and so here Paul comes to Ephesus and something happens early in his time in Ephesus he encounters some guys in fact he encounters 12 disciples who knew about John the Baptist and the teaching of John the Baptist, but they had no idea about Jesus. And so Paul has this interesting encounter right away as he gets into Ephesus, and he had to be wrestling with the idea and wondering, like, could it be that no one had yet made their way to Ephesus to update them about who Jesus was and the testimony about what had happened and and that, that faith um, in Jesus would bring salvation. Like, had that message of the gospel not reached Ephesus yet? And, and so there's, it's interesting. So you wonder if he was wrestling with those things. And it, it also gives us a little bit of insight to the fact that it's really possible that uh, in Ephesus, Paul would have been thinking through the idea that maybe there are very, very few Christians, if any, even in this huge city. Now, for some people, you would look at that and go, man, I'm at, you know, Paul's in the biggest place he's ever been with the most amount of people he's ever been surrounded by with all these different influences and all this different culture and all these different gods, and, and there's the lowest base of Christian support ever. Like, there may not be even any 
Christ followers in all of these hundreds of thousands of people. And, and you may look at that and think like, well, that's a little overwhelming. That's out of my league. That does not appeal to me at all. But that's not Paul. Paul was a guy who was fired up and excited to share the gospel and share about Jesus everywhere he went. And, and so for Paul, you have to think like Paul would have been looking at this and wondering and contemplating like, could this be, could it be that, that God's brought me to the biggest city, the most, uh, biggest metropolis area I've ever been to with the most amount of people I've ever had access to and very few, if, if not none, know about Jesus. And for Paul, that lit him up. That got him excited because Paul is the same guy that said in Romans 15, 20, he said, my ambition has always been to preach the good news where the name of Christ has never been heard, rather than where the church has already been started by someone else. He says, I've been following the plan spoken of in the scriptures where it says, those who have never been told will see, and those who have never heard of him will understand. And so that's exactly what Paul did when he gets to Ephesus, right? He, he starts with the Jews, and it was estimated that in Paul's time in Ephesus, there may have been somewhere around 10,000 Jews in Ephesus. And so that's exactly where Paul started. He went to the synagogue, right? The, the church of the Jews. And so Paul went there, and it makes sense. Because for a guy like Paul, a devout Jew, to be in this land of all these foreign countries and foreign religions and foreign gods and unfamiliar, it makes sense for him to start with the familiar, to start with his people, the people that would know and understand his message the easiest. And so he begins there, but uh, Luke says that it doesn't take very long, just a few months, and the Jews are starting to come against him. And so they're pushing back on his message, and they're arguing with him, and they're not really very receptive. And, if, and Luke goes on to say that beyond not receptive, they actually start speaking evil against Paul and the followers of the way, which is what they called the Christians. The Christ followers were the ones that would follow the way. And so they started speaking evil about them. So Paul's in a pickle. He's, he's in this huge city, he, he doesn't really have a lot of allies, it doesn't seem like at this point. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of uh, Christian uh, uh, partnerships or anything that he can line up with. And now the Jews in the synagogue are kicking him out of the synagogue, and so he doesn't have a place to teach. And Paul gets creative. I love what happens here. Like Paul thinks outside of the box. He actually goes to a place and strikes up a deal with a teacher named Tyrannus, who had a lecture hall. And Paul strikes up a deal to be able to use his lecture hall from 11 a.m. until 4 p.m. Now, here's the thing, which you've got to understand is that is by far the hottest part of the day. And the reason that lecture hall was probably available is because it's a time nobody wanted to go teach. And Tyrannus, the, the owner of the hall, certainly didn't want to use it during those hours. It was probably his siesta or napping hours. And and nobody wanted to go and listen to a lesson during the absolute heat of the day. But Paul was like, this is what's available. This is what I'm going to make work. And Luke says that he goes on to teach there, not just a little bit, but like he goes on to teach there for two years using this time slot in this lecture hall. 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. relentlessly through the heat of the day. And, and he gained so much influence, and, and God used him in such great ways that Luke could say these things about him. And in Acts chapter 19, verse 10, 
Luke said this. He says that this went on for two years so that all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now, this is pretty interesting because if you recall earlier when we were going through our study of Acts, we know that Paul oftentimes tried to go uh, into Asia and it said the Spirit of God prevented him or held him back from going into Asia for whatever reason. God didn't want him there at that time. And so here, years later, he finds himself in this mega city, this metropolis, teaching in the hall of a guy who had nothing to do with Christ or Christianity. And yet, because of his opportunity there, because of his faithfulness, and because of his influence that he gained teaching all those years, Luke could go on to say that all of the Jews and Greeks in the whole province of Asia had heard the gospel. Now, pretty amazing thing. I don't know if that's an exaggeration. I don't know if Paul is, or uh, if Luke is just sort of exaggerating to make a point, or if it's actually true, but, but no doubt, every Greek and Jew throughout the land by this point had heard of Paul and heard some of the stories about who he was and what he preached about and what he stood for, and what he had committed his life to. There's... Uh, a lot of stories that say that this would have been the type of thing that people would have even dropped in just to hear him talk at different times throughout the day. There's speculation that even in Ephesus during Paul's time there, that this became one of the things that people would go to do in Ephesus, was stop by and see the missionary Paul preaching at the lecture hall of Tyrannus, right? Like, so, when you're an ancient traveler and you used your City Pass app on your phone, right, and you got your City Pass for Ephesus to find out all the cool things to do while you were in town, one of the things that would have popped up was go see the missionary Paul in Tyrannus's lecture hall, right? This is one of those really cool things where I feel like I should be getting some chuckles from the crowd and all I can see is nothing. So, give me some uh, laugh emojis or something. I don't know. What do you do? So, so anyways, most scholars really do think that that's actually what happened when it came to uh, a really cool church plant that came uh, along throughout Paul's history. They think that, that there was a guy in a nearby city, um, Colossae, that was uh, southeast of Ephesus a ways, and there was a man named Epaphras, and Epaphras, they believe, learned from Paul in Ephesus, and then later took the message that he learned from Paul back to Colossae and planted a church there, and it was born out of his connection with Paul in Ephesus. And Paul writes about it in his letter to the Colossians in chapter 1, verse 7. He talks about Epaphras. And so, all of that stuff to say and to give you some background that, that it seems like Paul had sort of stumbled upon a really wise strategic formula. Here he is in this mega city, Ephesus, and, and for the first time ever, Paul didn't need to go out to all the world to share the gospel He found himself in a place where he could be in the same place every day and the world was coming to him. For a guy like Paul, that had to be pretty exciting. And I I can't help but do a little side note here and talk about how parallel, how many parallels there are and how similar that feels to our situation here in Pullman. Pullman, Washington is not a metropolis. It is not a mega city like Ephesus by any stretch of the imagination. And yet, we are poised uniquely here 
where we are in this rural ag community and yet there are thousands and thousands of people that come to us every year. The world comes to Pullman. WSU brings in somewhere upwards of 20,000 students a year. There are new people coming in that are drawn here because of SEL and then the other normal employment and support that comes from the community. And so here we are in this small rural ag community and we have this opportunity to connect with these people that come from around the world. Many come from around the state, many come from outside of our state, and still more yet come from around the globe to come and study in our town. And so we get this opportunity to share the gospel, to teach and equip and inspire and release people from our town here, from the comfort of our own home and our own community and our own neighborhoods to send people out, to plant churches, to make disciples in all of the nations around them, right? Like we get to do what every missionary dreams of doing, training up indigenous people to be sold out to the gospel, to share with their people where they actually live because they're the ones that are going to stay there lifelong and live with them and know the lingo and know the culture. We get the opportunity to train up indigenous people and send them out like crazy. So I just think that's really cool. Um, back to Paul. I, I also think that there's another little cool side note with Paul is that as much as Paul wanted it to work in the synagogue, like everywhere he went, he, he had this passion and heart for his people and he would go to the synagogue and it was no different in Ephesus. He, he goes to the synagogue, which is the, for him, the church at the time for, for the Jews. And and he would go there first and try to make it work. And as, as much as he wanted that to work, it just didn't pan out. And so Paul finds himself preaching in the lecture hall of a guy who wasn't a Christian and had nothing to do with Christianity, and yet he was using his facility for years on end to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. And again, it's kind of interesting. It feels a little bit similar to what God's been doing with us as a church here in Pullman. Here we find ourselves uh, renting a hall on the campus of a secular community to reach the world that comes to us so that we can inspire them and share the gospel with them, equip them, train them, and send them out to make disciples and plant churches. That's pretty exciting stuff. So back to Paul. He teaches in Ephesus for two years, and that works out to be something like 3,500 hours of teaching preaching, uh, sharing stories, bringing the text to life for Jews and Gentiles alike. Uh, Paul had taught about how uh, there is this uh, power in the name of Jesus over the spiritual realm, and they came to know that and understand it and believe it, and so they repented of their magic in a city that was given to believe in magic. And so they, they bring all their scrolls and, and they burn them, and it says in the text that they were worth 50,000 drachmas to which everybody's like, sweet, what's a drachma? And uh, a drachma is an amount of money that was equal to about one day's wages. So what that means for us today is that in today's dollars, that would be something like $4 million worth of stuff that they cashed in and burned, that they just destroyed. So for Paul and his ministry in Ephesus to get people to turn away from pagan ways and to to put their faith and trust in Jesus, like that was a huge, huge win. But there was lows as well. Paul wrote letters to the church in Corinth, and he talked about some of the really difficult things that he faced in Ephesus. He said that he 
faced great opposition in Ephesus, and he he likened the enemies and the people that were against them. He compared them to uh, like fighting wild beasts. And so, if you can imagine, if you're writing a letter to people that are praying for you and they're they're concerned for you and care about you, and you're you're sharing your story with them, and you say. There's people out to get me. There's they're lurking for me on every corner. It seems like no matter what I do, they're trying to figure out what's wrong with me. It's it like doing battle with these people is like doing battle with wild beasts. If you read that, it would create this imagery in your mind about like, whoa, Paul was up against some fierce opposition. It wasn't like, oh, some people in town don't like me. No, he said it was like doing battle with wild beasts. And then months later, Paul goes on to write the church in Corinth again, and he talked about the pressure that they were under in Ephesus, he and the other believers. He said that it was greater than their ability to endure could, could hold up, like they were about to give in. And he said that at points they despaired to the point of being sure that they were going to die. Like they, they had come to points in his time in Ephesus where he thought there was no way out. There was no way out of the circumstances alive. And so he went through great highs and great lows in Ephesus. And all of that happened before the story that we unpacked last week. Everything happened before those riots in Ephesus that we learned about last week. Those riots led to the point where Paul didn't just have some enemies in the city. It wasn't just the Jews who had turned against him. It wasn't just these uh, people that he called like wolves or wild animals that were out to get him, like certain sects or certain people groups that were against him. It, it got to the point where the entire city of hundreds of thousands had turned against Paul after all this time that he'd been there and all of this teaching and all of this investment, and all this relationship building and miracles and, and all the things that he had done, it gets to the point where the whole city is out to get him. Now, you can imagine for a guy like Paul, he, he wasn't quick to give up, right? He wasn't, he wasn't a guy that backed down easy. We're talking about the same guy who was stoned and left for dead outside of Lystra and got back up and walked back into the same town where the people had just stoned him to preach the gospel again. Like, if he was nothing, he was stubborn and courageous, like maybe a double dose of both. And, and Paul was not going to go easily from Ephesus, but he had friends that helped convince him, like, this is a fight you're not going to win. You won't make it out of this one alive. As much as we hate to say it, it's time. It's time that you're probably going to have to say goodbye to your beloved Ephesus. And so three years deep in teaching and building relationship, Paul has to say his goodbyes in Ephesus. And so he calls together his disciples and he shares with them that he's about to leave. And he talks about how he's going to go on basically what's a, like a small farewell tour. He's going to go back up into Macedonia, visit some of the other churches, and he's going to work his way back towards Jerusalem. Along the way, they find out again, there's another plot of people chasing Paul down and they're going to try and kill him. And so he doubles back, and he's uh, coming back towards Ephesus on ship, and he lands in a place called Miletus. And Miletus is a small port uh, town south of Ephesus, not too far away. And as Paul gets to Ephesus, he calls for the leaders from the church in Ephesus to come and meet him in Miletus. And now I want you to imagine, like in our world, this would be like calling a leaders meeting. 
This would be like somebody saying, hey, I want all of our leaders, the, the overseers, the shepherds, the pastors in our church, the, those that are looking out for the, the children in the children's ministry, the people that are looking out for the youth, for, for those of you that serve in any capacity. I, I, it's so important that those of you that lead and influence others in this church gather together. And, and so he calls for the leaders of the church. And then that's where I want to pick up the text with us this morning. So let's jump into it together. It's in Acts chapter 20. Uh, picking up in verse 17, this is what happens. He says, When we landed at Miletus, he sent a message to the elders of the church at Ephesus and asked them to come and meet him. And when they arrived, he declared, You know that from the day that I set foot on the province of Asia until now, I have done the Lord's work humbly and with many tears. I've endured the trials to, uh, that came to me from plots of the Jews, and I never shrank back from telling you what you needed to hear, either publicly or in your homes. Uh, I've had one message for Jews and Greeks alike, the, the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God and of having faith in our Lord Jesus. Now, real quick, there's an interesting thing in there. He mentions that he hasn't shrunk back from telling them what they need to hear in public or in the privacy of their homes. You see, in the culture they were in, the Romans were really suspicious of any teacher or sect that did a lot of teaching only in the privacy of their home where it felt like there was a lot of secrecy. It was always met with skepticism if this had something to do with overthrowing the authority of Rome. And so here Paul is like pointing out, listen, this wasn't about just what I did in it privately. This, isn't, this wasn't just the message that I spoke privately to you in your homes, but I I, I also taught publicly, and so I laid it out there, who I am and what I'm all about. It wasn't hidden from anybody, and he's like, and he goes on to remind him, like, and, and to, make, you know, to make my point even further, I only ever had one message. Whether you were Jew or Gentile, the thing that I wanted everyone to know always is that you need to repent from your sin and turn to God by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Like, he just beat that drum, and so he's in this farewell message, he's reminding them, these leaders of this church, this is who I was and what I was about, as if he's to say, this is what I want you to remain about. And so he goes on in verse 22. He says, And now I'm bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, and I don't know what awaits me, except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling the others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. And now I know that none of you to whom I have preached the kingdom will ever see me again. I declare today that I've been faithful. If anyone suffers eternal death, it's not my fault. For I didn't shrink from declaring all that God wants you to know. So guard yourselves and guard God's people, feed and shepherd God's flock, His church, purchased with His own blood, over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as leaders. I know that false teachers, uh, like vicious wolves, will come in among uh, you after I leave, not sparing the flock. He says, even some men from your own group will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw a following. Watch out! Remember that the three years I was with you, my constant watch and care over you night and day, and my many tears for you. And he goes on and he says, And now I entrust you to God and the message of His grace that is able to build you up and give you an inheritance with all those that He has set apart for Himself. 
He says, I never coveted anybody's silver or gold or fine clothes. And you know that these hands of mine have worked to supply for my own needs and even the needs of those who are with me. And he says, I've been a a constant example of how you can help those um, in need by working hard. He says, you should remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And then when he had finished speaking, he knelt and he prayed with them. And they cried as they embraced and kissed him goodbye. And they were sad most of all because he had said that they would never see him again. And then they escorted him down to the ship. And I think it's so interesting here that Paul says all of these really serious things. Like he he tells them, he warns them, guard themselves, guard your heart, guard God's people, look out for, shepherd the flock. There are going to be vicious wolves that rise up among you. Like he's giving them these stern warnings that like difficult, difficult things are going to happen as he leaves. He, he tells them not only are there going to be false teachers that rise up and vicious wolves that come to steal away the flock. The flock are people that they love and care about and have poured into. Like these aren't just like metaphorical sheep. These are real friends that they love that, that Paul's warning them are going to be stolen away at the hands of the enemy. And he says, and, and furthermore, he warns them, be careful because even from within your own ranks, some people are going to rise up. They're going to twist the truth because their pride and their ego is going to get the best of them. And they're going to try and draw people away to follow them because they love that people will listen to them. And they're going to draw them away from the truth of the gospel. And it's going to cause devastation and have all these consequences. And and Paul's saying all these difficult things to him about how hard it's going to be and these like messy things that are going to happen. And at the end of all that, as they kneel and pray, there's tears. And the thing that stuck out to him the most, the thing that hung heavy on their heart, was that their friend and their leader, Paul, said he was never going to see him again. And you see, at the end of the day, what mattered most to these Christian leaders was their relationship with Paul, because Paul had become much more than a a trusted and respected teacher. He had become a friend. He had become someone that they loved dearly and knew that he dearly loved them. And and it had had grown far beyond that teacher relationship to that trusted friendship, and and, and one that left them in tears at the thought of never seeing each other again. that kind of love and concern develops when you do life together. And that's what we call relationship. And, and you spend time together, you laugh together, you fight together, you struggle through hard times together, you go on adventures together, you share experiences together, you eat food together, you um, get mad at some of the same things, you're frustrated at things in common, you're happy with things in common. like. You're there for each other when you're down and you help lift each other up and you help correct or kick your friend in the butt when they need a kick in the butt and they're off the path and they're, they're being unwise and not following God. Like That is biblical relationship. It's like loving people for the purpose of helping them stay on the path to follow Jesus. It's more than just a loyal friend. It's a loyal friend with a purpose. And that's what these people had experienced with Paul in all of his time in Ephesus. And and that's what really biblical relationship is all about. And, And we believe as a church, 
like Paul, that relationship is at the heart of discipleship. In order to truly help people get to know and follow Jesus, you have to take the time to truly get to know them, right? We've all heard the saying that people don't care what you know until they know if you care, right? Relationship is the vehicle that gives you the opportunity to show the people that you actually care, that you're interested in them, that you're concerned for them, that that you're not out to just get what you can get from them, but you actually want to be friends and you want to help build a friendship with them to help them learn how to follow Jesus and stay on the path. And in the weeks and months to come, we're going to really dig in as a church and we're going to get creative under these weird circumstances that we're operating in. We're going to get creative at at really helping people develop new relationships. Um, and, And not just like, hey, everybody needs more friends. That's not what I'm talking about. Like, We want to help people cultivate new relationships for the purpose of making disciples. Like, We want to help our church fulfill the Great Commission to make disciples. And being in real relationships with people is the the non-negotiable ingredient to making disciples. And so we're going to think outside the box, and we're going to try some things that are different than maybe what church has looked like in the past. And we're going to try and help people connect together as a church in some creative ways. We're also going to try and help people connect together with each other in some fun and creative ways. And so I just want to say this. As As a pastor here at Real Life, along with our team, I just want to encourage you. We all want to encourage you to join us, to jump on board with us and being a part of a church that is married to the mission of Christ and and not so much the methods that we've always used because those are the ways we've always done it, right? Like, uh, let's be sold out to the mission to reach the world for Jesus one person at a time, to, to do that by making relationships for the purpose of discipleship. Like, that's who we are and what we're all about. And the ways we go about that can change based on the circumstances in the world that we're living in. But it doesn't change the mission. And so as we come up with some new ideas and we uh, rally as a church to get creative at doing new things and sharing the gospel with people that we love and care about in our community, I would encourage you, respond. Get on board. Get off the bench. Jump in the water with us and try some new things. When we ask for help, help us. When we ask for support, support us. When we ask you to, to share something and help spread the word, help us spread the word. If you're right now watching this going, I don't even know what you guys have got coming down the pike, but whatever it is, I'm in and I want to help, tell us. Help be a part of the process of helping us figure out how to try some new and different ways to uh, bring church to people in Whitman County. There are people right now in our community that don't know Christ as their Savior. There are people that are struggling and dealing with a a lack of hope and wondering how life is going to work for them in the weeks and months to come. And more than an unemployment check, more than um, help with food, more than any of that, they need to know about a God who loves them. And they can meet him as people like us can meet those other needs in their life as well. And so we're going to get creative. And so I would just say, be ready for those messages to come. Be ready for us to share ideas about how to be sold out to try some new things, to meet people in new ways, and bring the gospel in creative ways to neighborhoods in uh, in our own community. And as we do, jump on board. And let's have, uh, let's have everybody get in and, and try some new things. And, and I would just ask for your patience 
as we continue to figure this out in the, in the weeks and months to come and, and help us remember, and, and as a church, let's all stay focused, that the mission is what we're concerned with. We're concerned most and, and, and always concerned most with reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time, helping people learn how to be disciples in the context of relationship. That has nothing to do with whether we can meet in a building or not meet in a building or whether we can be five people in a room or 50 people in a room or 500 people in a room. It won't affect our ability to accomplish the mission. We're smarter than that. We're better than that. Let's get creative and figure out how to skin this cat in some new ways. I'm pretty excited about it. So I'm actually really looking forward to the season to come because it'll cause us to think. It'll cause us to innovate and uh, new ideas are going to come down the pike that we never would have thought of otherwise. So... Um, pray with us as we uh, go down this adventure and join us. I'm going to finish this morning with communion. And so if you have not got your communion elements, now is a good time to go grab them. And then we're going to take communion together in a few minutes. Well, every week we take time to finish our service together by taking communion together. And it's because of what Christ accomplished on the cross that Paul could have the conviction that he had to share the gospel, the same message with Jew and Gentile alike. And it's the same reason behind why we can be passionate about sharing our faith with our friends and, and sharing the gospel message, the good news that, that through faith in Jesus, you can be made uh, right with God. Uh, not only have your sins forgiven, but you can enter into a, a right relationship square with God today as a citizen of the kingdom. And so that's all accomplished by what we remember that Jesus did for us on the cross. And so as we finish this morning, we remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks for it. And afterwards, he told his guys that uh, as often as they get together, let's eat this in remembrance of him. So let's eat and remember this morning. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he told them that this cup represented a new covenant which was sealed with the shedding of his blood. And, and that covenant represented the forgiveness of sins. And so as we drink this cup, we remember that we have forgiveness of sins because of the shed blood of Christ. So let's drink. Join me in as we pray in close. Father God, we love you and we are just so grateful for your word. We are so grateful for your son. And we're so grateful for um, an example like Paul. Um, we get to see and learn so much about his character and his nature and the kind of uh, guy he was and his passion and fervor for life and excitement to share about your son. Um, it's inspiring. And so God, thanks for giving us so many details about a guy like Paul to inspire and spur us on to be more like him as we share our faith with our friends. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everybody, don't forget to get registered for the Leader and Volunteer webinar. If you've been a part of our team in any capacity, leading or volunteering over the last year, make sure you jump on our website or look in the description for the link to get registered for that. Sunday night, June 7th, 7 p.m. I will see you there. Have a great day.